0: Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Simon Dudley, Chief Contrarian for Accession Events. To learn more and for information about the book and other resources, please go to accessionevents.com. This is Simon Dudley, the host of the Accession Events podcast. And today I'm very excited to say we've got my old friend and boss and one of the great figures of the UC stroke video conferencing industry for the last, well, forever, Joe Vitalone Joe, welcome to the show. Hi, hi, Simon. How are you? I'm great, so It's good to speak to you. And um, you? I've been looking forward to this. Uh, I don't know that there's any man alive who's got better stories than Joe Vitale. <laughs> you are somewhat famous for it. Normally, with food involved at Eddie V's in Austin, in my experience, uh, yeah. but we can't take every one of our couple of thousand listeners to Eddie V's for dinner, although I'm sure we'd both like to.
1: Yeah. So. here in austin
0: or in dallas now oh well there you go well yeah well obviously austin for me i'd much prefer austin because uh, it's the uber would be cheaper so uh, joe not everyone and i know i i'm even shocked saying this not everyone knows who you are so you better explain who you are what your day job is these days other than being a semi-professional golf player and um and a bit of history where did you come from and how did you get where you are today Okay, so my role
1: uh, today, Simon, is I'm the executive vice president and president of the Americas regions for Mitel Networks. Uh, what that means is I'm responsible for Canada, the United States, and Latin America. So approximately 450 million of the company's 1.2 billion dollars in revenue is in my is in my group. Uh, we're located in. Uh, we have 60 million con- uh, customers in over 100 countries around the world, and I'm responsible for a, a pretty nice chunk of that. So that's my day job. Uh, I've played very little golf now uh, as a result of my day job. Um, and uh, my, my background is, as you well know, because you've experienced about half of it, is voice, video, back to voice, back to video, now back to voice. So uh, I, am a, uh, I am a student and alumnus of uh, PictureTel, Polycom, ShortTel, Size, Covey, which was funded by Polycom, uh, Tell 2 stints, and so my career... And I've kind of worked my resume backwards, uh, spans over 30 years, almost to the day. Now I've been doing this since 1985. Uh, I started in Mytel in 86. I guess the human, interesting human interest story was out of school, my first real good sales job was at Mytel in 86. I was responsible for the state of Texas. And now 30 years later, I'm running the, uh, the America. So it proves that I think with a little hard work, some good luck, and a lot of really good friends, you can, uh, you can move up the corporate ladder a little bit. And we've had success along the way, in, um, in some startups that were successful, uh, Polycom um, via video being one of those. Um, Tell is a company we we took public. Covey uh, we sold to General Electric, and and certainly Lifesize. I came in uh, after the, uh, the company was funded, but was there during the uh, sale to Logitech uh, with you, and that was a very interesting time uh, and a great experience in my life. So that's uh, that's my background in a nutshell.
0: Right. Yes. Uh, I have to say when you talk about, well, we're going to talk about your luck uh, later because Mr. Vitalone for many of us is the, I mean, talk about jump out. Ju- you're incredible. I, I can't even think of an analogy, which is safe for the radio that I can use about how "quote lucky you are. Now luck is, as you've said before, uh, something you need to get in the way of, yeah. but, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Now yep. you've had a 30 year career, as you beautifully explained, one of the things that's happened in my career, I, I've been in business nearly as long as you. I'm obviously many, many, many years younger, but then I started much younger than you did. Something must be true because, anyway. Um, one of the things that's happened is that businesses keep getting disrupted. Right, I was selling, as people have heard in this podcast before, I was selling dedicated word processors until no one wanted dedicated word processors and we all went to PCs with WordPerfect on. And then no one wanted those and everyone wanted Windows and in hindsight, all these things became, well, it's obvious that everyone would do these things and they weren't obvious at the time. You, as the luckiest man I know, and I mean that as a as an absolute genuine um, compliment because I don't believe in luck in the in the sense of you're not lucky, you just get in its way. You've been brilliant. At this. When these yep. changes happen, you've always got in its way. What's the secret? You can tell us now. Okay. Uh, so I
1: guess I've had a... Uh, an ability to kind of see the future before it happened from a sales perspective. So a person on the technical perspective that is, is fortunate, I guess would be Brian Hinman from, you know, uh picture tell polycom to wire fame. Uh, technically he's one of the few innovators I know that has, has has created and then started a billion dollar companies. He may be the only one, Simon, we'll have to take a look at that, but not many people have uh, started three different companies that went on to be over a billion in sales, like Brian uh, and Jeff Bernstein. And then certainly Casey King, uh, who you've uh, done an interview with on podcast. But for me on a, from a sales perspective, I've always had the ability to, to see what the next uh, great thing is. And I've also been able to take a look at how companies were formed and funded and take a look at teams. And I can tell if a team is going to be successful or not based on the characters that make up the, the beginning team. And so I've been fortunate to be on some really good ones at, uh, at the early days at Polycom, the very early days at PictureTel, at LifeSize, at Shortel, and um, all great companies in their infancy and certainly have, have gone on to be good companies uh, you know, later on down the road. But uh, for me, that's the recipe. But I focus more on the team than I do on the technology because I don't have the technical aptitude to be able to tell if a if a product is going to be successful like a Brian or a, or a Casey might, uh, or even you. Uh, but I certainly do have the ability to take a look at a group of individuals as a team and a leadership team, sales team, marketing team, and be able to predict whether or not that team will be successful.
0: Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. So what you've got, to, you've got to answer the question, what are you looking for in that team? Uh, so I, I look... For a
1: team that's uh, symbiotic, so they're not all the same. So I look at a very diverse team of thought leaders that that uh, get along but think differently. So the collection of the group adds up to more than the sum of the parts and looking for people that are, are coachable, uh, people that, uh, aspire to greatness. Um, and, you know, so they, they chase excellence and hope to catch perfection. That's one of my favorite new, uh, new things I hear said. I think it's a Vince Lombardi quote actually. And, um, but I, but that's what I look for really in a, in a team. So it's a, it's a really diverse group of individuals that, uh, um, aren't focused on money. They're focused on success in the sense that, uh, they really want to create, uh, a group. Um, and a company that uh, uh, comes and turns out to be something really, really good.
0: Uh, And
1: and I've seen that happen on four or five occasions.
0: Now, that's fascinating because many companies are started by one individual who typically becomes, I've written about this recently, about the king's new clothes and the madness of CEOs and how they can all go mad. And and there's nothing personal about that. It's just a reality of being, if you're at the top of a company, People are going to tell you nice things, whether you ask them to or not, because it's generally good for their career. And then after a period of time, they start believing these things. Um, you've been very senior. Lots of people have said very nice things to you in the past. I've been one of them, perhaps. How do you keep your feet on the ground? You know, How do you connect with a world in which 80% of the audience probably is telling you what they think you want to hear? Uh I've never let it, I guess
1: I've never let it go to my head and I've never felt like I was the boss. I've always put myself as a colleague and as a peer. And I think, uh, that's what inspires a lot of people. Um, I've been told that about me. So I, I, I you've told me that. And so I believe it to be true. Uh, I had, um, I had, uh, lunch the other day with a colleague, former colleague that you and I know very well from, from Shortel and he paid me that compliment. So I think that's what it is. I think that, uh, I'm not afraid to, uh, get in the trenches and do the work and and, uh, and I can do it just as good if not better than some and they see that and and I think that 's what inspires them so i lead um, I lead from the front you know i I like to get grab the flag and, and charge the hill and i don't i don 't dictate and delegate a lot. I typically uh, do, and if they see me working really hard, they tend to work hard um, but Um, they also look to me for advice and coaching, I guess, a lot because they figured I've made a lot of mistakes along the way. They don't want to make the same mistakes I have made. And I spoke to a group of uh, inside sales reps yesterday, spent two hours with them. So, you know, a more junior set of of employees, 25 years to 27 years old, first job out of school and, uh, you know, told them what I knew, try to collapse the timeline for them to be successful, uh, gave them some shortcuts, things not to do. Um, so I think that's what that's what inspires a lot of people about me. I'm 53, I guess going to be 54 shortly. So doing this 30 years, so not old, not young, uh, but been around the block. My, my, you know, my odometer definitely has turned over a couple of times. So I've seen a lot of uh, successes and failures. And I, if I, you know, if I were teaching young people today, I would, I would tell them to, uh, to look to people that have spent a lot of time in the industry and figure out what they did wrong, if they, uh, the question I ask a lot of uh, people with experiences, if you had to do it all over again, what would you do differently? And you get some amazing responses when you do that.
0: Yeah, you do. So that's always one of my favorite questions in these interviews. Uh- You'd like, you like know, everyone can tell everyone else well interview or at any point well i did this and i was great and i did that right and i'm full of these stories as well and then someone asked that horrible bombshell what was the most horrible screw-up in your professional career which perhaps is not under present legal uh you know issues it's <laughs> always so you're in the clear from that point of view yeah, um, yeah. share share us share it with uh... us and, and what did you learn a uh, couple of screw ups. So, um, I chased, uh, here's
1: one I chased after the federal business once, and it cost us about, um, $10 million in venture capital money. And we didn't get much out of it. So I don't think if I were a young company today, I would, I would go after the federal market because it's really owned by Cisco and, 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 and others like Polycom that have lobbyists and, and certainly the big defense contractors. And so if you have very little runtime in the federal space, the three-letter agencies, I, I would recommend, even as a mid-sized company, that you you go after more low-hanging fruit. So don't don't waste a lot of time and effort chasing after the federal government. Uh, that can even trickle down into state and local government because of the politics. But certainly in the in the federal space, um, you know, another big screw up was one of the one of the, my favorite companies that I ever did was Kobe. Um, I did that with Barry Walker and had the time of my life. We were funded by uh, Oak investment partners and, and um, in a series of Walden International and Polycom was an investor uh, in our company. And it was just a great group of people at the right time. We made high definition video surveillance cameras. Uh, one of the cameras ended up having noise in the sensor. When you have noise in the sensor that magnifies in the digital world To uh, a bad image in the in the d v r and uh, that bad image then is not admissible in a court of law and it can't put the bad guys in jail if you don't have a a really high quality image and so that was something that happened that it was beyond my control because I was on the sales side of things, and so despite that, we were really successful selling selling the product but at the end of the day, what killed the company was uh, that we had a challenge getting the sensor Uh, and the image to work the way that it should have. And so ultimately the company was sold to GE and they've done something uh, great with it. But um, that was one that was the, that was probably the home run that the guy leaped over the wall and caught it and brought it back in and it ended up being an out. Mm. So uh, that was the one that hurt the most, but it was absolutely the most fun. And I probably learned the most and had the greatest group of people that you know, we started that from scratch and raised all the money and built our office space and hired every single employee and built out our sales organization. Those were those were so that was a successful failure.
0: And and that was the because many of the companies you've joined because of the roles you've taken as head of sales um, and and head of revenue have typically been a little later stage. You in my experience, at least, maybe I'm wrong here, but things like Life Size and you know, Paintly they didn't have a role for you at the first day one. Yeah. I Two years, but Covey was different, wasn't it? Because well, Covey, it was you were there, yeah. absolutely the day the piece of paper was signed.
1: Yeah, I was. Uh, I have helped raise all the venture capital. I I was out there in Palo Alto with the whole gang raising the raising the money, and was there when we celebrated when we got our our first round of funding, which was thirteen million, and then uh, we got a second tranche of of, of a similar amount. So um, I remember. Uh, going skiing with a group of angel investors in Vail, Colorado. That angel investor group gave us $1.2 million in, in checks, 11 checks, uh, 12 checks of 100000 apiece approximately. And we ended up turning that angel investment down and, and accepting a venture capital investment uh, from the group I just, I just mentioned. And um, we started out at $6 million and they ended up giving us 13 So we went from going after a $2 million round to getting a $13 million round Subsequently, went to over twenty some odd million, and and we started the company from there. So, um, Shortel was a little bit later. It was um, it it was funded. It was in its uh, C round, I guess. It was pre public. So I spent two years there, and then and then I was uh, part of the IPO and did the S one filing as a Section 6, sixteen officer. Um, and then Life Size, as you know, you were there, and I, it was a, a pre acquisition. A uh, thirty million dollar company. Polycom was a thirty million dollar company when they acquired Via Video. I was the, one of the first sales people hired, David, Budd and myself at, at Via Video. So we built the the entire sales organization there with Matt Collier. So it was me, Matt, and David on the on the sales side, and then there were five five founders um, that uh, were acquired by Polycom for fifty four million dollars in February of ninety seven, and then I stayed on for three and a half years, and, and ran Polycom sales uh, for the, uh, as you know, the show station that you talk so favorably about, <laughs> uh, the, the V station and the sound station uh, products, many of which are still
0: still around to this day. Yeah, the show station, I think for many of our audience, I don't know if they would remember it, but one of the most, not just awful products I've ever seen, but most dangerous. In fact, you have a, you have a story to tell about the show station, don't you?
1: Yeah, yeah. I was with Brian Hinman, and I were at a uh, MCI when they were around. Uh, uh, we were both the keynote speakers at their kickoff meeting. Brian, obviously, being the the main the main person, being the genius that he is, and so he absolutely insisted that the use the show stations. So he got on his hands and knees to empty the uh, the storage uh, where the power goes into the into the lamp, and he put a, a screwdriver there and got you know, a few thousand Watts of voltage through his, uh, through his body. He laid motionless for a minute on the floor, completely stunned and dazed. And so I just remember picking my founder and, and, and star up off the ground and holding him up with my, literally with my hands under his arms. And then finally he, he kind of came to, so it, it knocked him literally senseless for about a good 20 seconds or so. And then, uh, And then once the shock left his body, he was able to stand. (laughs) That's my my great Brian Hinman, the genius, uh, on his hands and knees, insisting on using the show station and almost being burned to a crisp.
0: (laughs) I have to ask, did he use the show station for the presentation? He really really did. He absolutely used the show station. So not only was it awful and dangerous, but the show station was also very tough. It could kill its user and keep on going. It was a $13,000
1: overhead projector, and we were selling them, which shocks me. I remember selling $1.8 million worth of those to Sprint North Supply in Overland Park, Kansas. Probably one of the greatest sales of my career. They've still uh,
0: got them. You know that, Joe. There's, uh, they're on eBay now.
1: Yeah, they're a Barrier Reef, I think,
0: off the coast of someplace by now. Oh, but, my I <laughs> would They were the worst product. For those of you who don't remember this thing, it was, as Joe suggests, an overhead projector with some sort of data collaboration so that you could show whatever was on the, the overhead, on the foil, at the other end of a call. It, apparently, people wanted to do that, or, or some product guy decided wow. they wanted to do that. And then we showed it to the world, said it was $13,000, and everyone stared at us and went, why have you made this? It, it was, it was the worst it. product I've ever seen. I've
1: ever, I've, I remember throwing it away in my, in my dumpster at my house when I uh, moved and I, I took great pride in, in picking it up over my head and slamming it to the bottom of the dumpster and I, listening to all the glass crash because it held me back. I mean, uh, I had such a huge number to hit with that product and, and it just for $13,000, it was worth about 1000 It wasn't worth thirteen.
0: Well, uh, yeah, okay, you'll be more generous than me. You couldn't have given that thing away. It did, however, one thing it did do, and, and, you know, before it just sort of turns into a Joe Simon laughing about awful product moment, it did make Polycom push the view station at an enormous rate. I I seem to remember we both worked for Dale Bastian at that point, I believe, and... um, you know, the targets they had for the for the show station were ridiculous. They were like a third of the company's revenues. Of course, mm-hmm. those utterly tanked. And so we ended up pushing the show, the view station like crazy. Uh, I remember having a conversation with an old friend of mine, James Anderson, who I used to work with and now lives in Australia. And he suggested that as an MDF fund event, we offer our resellers or distribution partners strain gauges so that we could see if the weight of view stations on their shelves had lessened enough that we could sell them more because we were just shoving these things everywhere in what? 99,
1: 2001. Yeah. Yeah. I I remember SKC had to get a bigger forklift because they had to go up higher and they they were selling so many view stations at the time. That was one of the most successful product and product launches and really one of the best sales efforts I've ever seen because we created a channel so quickly uh, and took advantage of um, the acquisition with Polycom and went worldwide probably faster than any other company that I was a part of. I mean, we sold a million view stations so quickly. And, you know, when we went into, into we went into the trenches, we sold our biggest customers initially were Microsoft. I remember being with Craig at, at Procter & Gamble. Literally, when the picture tell guys were walking out of the building as we were walking in, and seeing the shock on their face, and we took over Procter and Gamble. So here's this nascent startup company of sorts now selling all the systems to Microsoft. They rebuilt their entire furniture in their conference rooms to accommodate the shape and the um, size of the speakerphone in every one of the conference rooms at Microsoft on a on a global basis. Same with same with uh, Procter and Gamble.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I mean, that's a perfect example of an accession event that the, the PictureTel VTel duopoly had been running for years. And with the Polycom product, we simply reinvented what success looked like in the market. I remember Stuart Henderson coming to see me. I, I worked for a PictureTel reseller at the time and he put a view station on top of a PictureTel Concorde. It was smaller than the camera for the Concorde and it was better and it was a fifth the price. And the owners of the reseller I worked for, this was in 98, said, yeah, we've decided our business plan for this product is ignore it and hope it goes away. And needless to say, two things happened. One, I left that reseller and joined Polycom six weeks later. And nine months later, they went bust. And what was interesting about that was... There was two angles to it, it seems to me. There was the technological advantage. The view station was unquestionably the best product in the market. But there was also a sales machine built. And lots of companies, and I you know, maybe we could name and maybe we couldn't in this call, but lots of companies seem to think that having a great product is what matters and the world will be a path to your door if you build a great product. And yeah. history would suggest it's simply not true. You've got to have a good sales and marketing program Or else no one's going to even know you exist. Oh,
1: I I will take a, I will take a great sales organization with a mediocre product over a average sales organization and a great product every day, all day. And I've had them all. And, um, I've had success with very average products, tremendous success with very average products. And, and then I've had uh, unbelievable products that, that because we didn't have a good go to market strategy that failed. And so, um, I will take that that great sales organization first, especially today. I mean, part of the, you know, what I think we'll talk about today is, you know, what's changed. Um, but to close on your comment, I've worked with two early early stage companies and via video, and and uh, uh, and obviously one when we did Covey. I've worked with three medium sized companies. I've worked with now two really big companies, Siemens Tel Plus and and Mytel twice. And there's a big difference. Certainly, going through an IPO was probably the toughest thing that I did, but. And all of that, from the, the smallest of the small through venture funding, all the way to filing an S1 to to companies that have sold and been sold and done secondary offerings for four or five hundred million. What the common theme is is that a, a great sales organization and a great go-to-market strategy and inspired employees trumps everything. And um, and so that's what I look for when I when I make a change or when I hire is is somebody gonna come to my organization. Today we have a company that's 42 years old. Are they going to be inspired by being at a 42-year-old company or is this going to be boring for them? And if it's boring, they should move on. If, it's, if, if they want to try to help reshape and do something that really hasn't been done, certainly hasn't been done in 30 or 40 years, uh, then this is the place
0: to be. Yeah, it's interesting. I noticed this recently that it's working with a client uh, or a company that had an average sales price went down from something like $40,000 to something like $10,000 in two years. And they no. didn't change the business model, and then of course they did the usual. Well, let's blame the sales organization for failing the numbers. It's like, hang on, this isn't reasonable. You can't do this. You need to change the business model. But so many companies seem to be obsessed with the product and not care about how it's actually sold. It's sort of, it's like sales is kind of a grubby thing. Oh, just the the doers do that. We don't need to think about it. I think it's absolutely the wrong answer. Yeah, having a.
1: Having a really good, and that's what we did uh, famously, I think, in the early days was, uh, was really having a strong go-to-market strategy that was, was very sound. And then, and then really, in, in most cases, it's been an indirect selling model that I've been involved in. And when your partners are making money and they're inspired and they feel like you're a colleague and a friend and an ally uh, in the market and you're not a threat to them, they will do uh, some unnatural things. And, we, you know, I've had the good fortune of having some just wonderful partner communities over the course of 30 years that I've worked with. And, and when they really get that engine running, um, they, they become exclusive. They keep the, the average selling price high uh, so you don't have to lower the prices. And, and um, you, can do, you can do incredible things.
0: Yeah I agree if you if you end up as a manufacturer who the resellers can't trust or doesn't don't feel they can trust you've lost it I mean yeah. it's a disastrous set of circumstances yeah so, so speaking of um swinging something different because we need to move on but this is this market is going crazy right now like a carno just got bought by Cisco uh for what 700 million dollars yeah. yeah, the multi, the multiplier on their revenues was well crazy. it it was crazy because it meant basically that they weren't buying them for their revenue, they are buying them for their technology. Uh, you're kind of tangentially attached to that mm-hmm. in the sense that you see Cisco, is all becoming one now. Um, what's your predictions? How's this market going to uh, shake out in the next year or two? Well,
1: so it's, I think what's, what's going to win this, this, this race for this, what's happening is you're, you know, we've said, and our CEO have said is we're going to be very acquisitive and we have been in the market. I think you're going to see a lot of consolidation on the video side of things. You're going to see it with Econo. I think you'll see it next with Blue Jeans. and um you and I have been in the video industry for since the beginning since it was really founded and, and took off and and the one thing that will hold it back uh, will be its uh, complexity. And so what I see now with econo and uh, with Pexip and with uh, blue jeans and with you know Skype for business and video is that they are doing a really good job of making video a lot more ubiquitous and open. And I think the mistake that Cisco made early on was when they acquired Tanberg and they had all that telepresence and the telepresence stuff was hundred thousand dollars a room and then it came down to seventy five a room. It could only talk to itself. What we're seeing today with Econo and other companies like that is that they are 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 becoming very standards based and they are allowing uh, they are allowing video systems to um, to attach to one another a lot easier, more seamless, allow you to use your collaborative tools better, uh, so that people will choose video um uh, you know as quickly as they will choose voice and you know that's what skype did brilliantly right skype was free yes uh it was low grade and kids were using it a lot uh, but they were using it because it was easy i could just type in simon dudley i could find you anywhere in the world and i could do a call and and if it was it was point to point yes but it was just drop dead simple and I think they did too, uh, for video what you know, uh, Steve Jobs did for, uh, f- you know, for smartphones and for music and for you know, creating a holistic environment where everything works together seamlessly and the collection of all of your unified communications tools then work together as one and they don't fight with one another. It's very easy to use. And I think that's the recipe. And for companies that solve that complexity problem, and make it drop-dead simple to use, uh, those are the ones that are going to win. And there's a few people out there that I'd keep an eye on, and I've named a few of those here on the, on the podcast.
0: Sure. Uh, it's interesting. It seems to me that video conferencing is becoming much less of a standalone application in its own right and basically an application built into other things. It's pretty obvious that, that video is just going to become another app within a UC Play for many of the players, for example. Already is, you could argue, from some. Um, yeah. it, it's also just becoming the whole idea of spending twenty thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars on a video room is becoming an anathema. I mean, nothing in IT costs fifty thousand dollars anymore. I think that people are are just looking at it, go, no, 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 this needs to be hundreds of dollars, not tens of thousands of dollars. Hopefully, that will change the way the market works because I, for one, find it fairly moribund. I mean, it hasn't changed in many senses. For ten years, in, yeah. in the sense that there's the same resellers selling the same products or same types of products. Yeah, they're newer, yet a better quality. But the market hasn't grown. Now, ninety-six percent of meeting rooms still don't have any video conference. That to me is the problem. Not whether I can do 1080p at sixty frames. But yeah, and in order to and in order to get in order to get meeting rooms full, you've got
1: to get desktop users to enter those rooms on their desktops. So it's it's one thing to have. A group meetings and huddle room meetings, and another thing to have people remotely, like you and I are right now, talking, uh, join those meetings in those rooms. And so, um, one of the things that has kept video conferencing back, and I get asked this a lot by industry pundits and people in the space and, and folks like you that are. Uh, you know, we're searching for the reason why is that you're in this country. And frankly, a lot of other countries, you're not going to get an HD camera two feet from your face. It's an unnatural act, no matter what age you are, no matter what sex you are to stick a high definition, Carl Zeiss camera up your nose. It's just not, um, it's not what we want to do and we'll do it once or twice, but we're not going to make a habit of it. And so uh, it is a human factors issue that people haven't figured out. Um, you know, one of the reasons why Skype took off was it, it wasn't HD, it was a very small image and it was, it was really young people. And I, I think a lot of folks just don't want to have a camera that close to their face. It's uncomfortable for the reason why, when I talk to you, I don't stand a foot away from you. And, not, uh, well, not these days. Not, no. Yeah. So, so <laughs>
0: <laughs> I remember when I looked for you, you did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm actually only kidding, Joe. I don't think I ever heard you raise your voice. Um, uh, I don't think in all the time that I work with you. Yeah, you know, I don't, I, I haven't had to, which has been a
1: great, uh, great experience. And I certainly haven't done it on video. And, um, and so I think that's what tell desktop back and then, and then group systems, you know, I think when they solved the complexity piece so that you could walk into a room and, and initiate a call without having to have three other people help you with it and, and establish a presentation, whether it's an Excel spreadsheet, a PowerPoint presentation, or, keynote or whatever it is you're using as simple as, as it is. And we've done that at, at my toe. Great. I mean, we, uh, I'll tell you since I've been at where I'm working now, I use, I use my meeting tool, uh, collaboration tools, my collab, we call it, but I use it all the time. It's just, it's just drop, drop dead simple. Okay. Um, and and we're starting to use video more uh, as, a, as a corporation. Obviously, we started in the voice business, but we're now we're, we're clearly a unified communications leader, and we're, we're using a lot more video now than we ever have.
0: Now, one of the things that's interesting to me is, and I wrote about this recently, about the ultimate mute button is a pan-tilt-zoom camera turning to face you. I mean, you've basically said the same thing. People yeah. hate that stuff. They can, yeah. be, they can be... I mean, the only person I know you can stick a camera in their face and they won't stop talking it has to be Donald Trump. But yeah... Know, how many people want to do a video call with Donald? So a- yeah,
1: exactly. And I, I, I think you said it. I think it's a really, it's an unnatural act, and people are really uncomfortable. They're uncomfortable even in a in a group room, let alone a you know two a camera two feet from your face. And so um, I think we, I think as a you know we have to get more comfortable with it. I think I think the millennials are are certainly more adapted to it. You know, we live in a YouTube generation. And the, the YouTubers now, the, the, the young people that are growing up today are so used to it. They don't, they will not pick up a phone. YouTube, my son, for example, is 23. My daughter's 26. Uh, they don't use the phone. They do everything via text or, or FaceTime. And uh, that's their world. They're very comfortable with it. They text, they, they Instagram, they, you know, they, uh, they, they will chat. But for them to pick up a phone is a very unnatural act.
0: Oh, I agree. My boys are 14 and 13. They won't use the doorbell. They'll send you a text from outside the front door to let. Yeah, you so come open the door for me. Yeah, open the door. It's like really, you can't ring the doorbell, but yeah. apparently not. Yeah. So uh, you talked about millennials there. Uh, you know, if and I'm, I'll be honest with you, I'm pretty scared for my boys about what's gonna, what kind of world of jobs they're gonna end up in, if there's gonna be any jobs by the time that they get out yeah. of the world, world of work in ten years from now. You, but you said yourself, you were talking to some junior people the other day uh, in, the, in the mid-20 range. What's your advice? What are you saying to millennials these days? Uh, well, I'll tell you one career
1: that will always be around and that's sales. And, and yeah, the internet is collapsing the sales cycle. And, and you know 60% of the job is done before you get to the zero moment of truth. But the net of it is is uh, the sales profession is still one that is going to be rock solid. And and so I'm obviously the, the apple didn't fall from far from the tree in my home and my son will probably go into sales and marketing. But I, I would say that's an area that, uh, I think if you are very good at selling, uh, and, and can really educate yourself about the art of selling. And, and mastered. I think it's a great career for, uh, for young people. If you don't have the aptitude of personality type and you have, you struggle building rapport and things of that nature, and it's just not who you are, then, then I really like the video space, uh, one way video. So I would get into something that was in collaboration. Um, you know, and I think you can build a really nice career, um, uh, on the video, uh, on the video side of things, in terms of uh, like what what we're seeing with YouTube and some of the applications that that are utilizing streaming video and things of that of that kind.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, I think that's very positive. Actually, I remember you showed a video a few years ago, and it was how we meant to equip a generation when half the jobs that exist today don't or won't in ten years from now, and and uh, it does keep me awake at night. That stuff yeah. is uh, is I'm scared of it.
1: I think you should be very conscious I see, you know, I teach a few classes at a few universities and I see some of these really obscure degrees that kids are spending ridiculous amounts of money on. And I think you should be real selective over what you educate yourself on because there will be degrees uh, that will uh, be completely obsolete and they'll have no use uh, in the real world. And so you'll either, you have to go on and get an MBA or a PhD in something else. So I think the undergrad work, you should spend a lot more time on, f- on, on areas of focus and interest that are actually going to be around in in the next 10 years. So spending time with a guidance counselor, talking to people like you and me, or people that are around in the industry 20 or 30 years that see the future really well, I think it's, you know, it's really good advice. And I think more educators, uh, supervisors, principals of schools, and and certainly chancellors and presidents ought to to have industry people come in and talk about what the next big thing is. And so people kind of align their careers to something that's going to have a job at the end of the rainbow.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's funny. I was teaching a class at, um, I'm a professor for a day at the University of um, Missouri. And uh, I was saying to the students there, be as broad as possible. Have as, so you don't necessarily, you don't need to be become a specialist early. Uh, I think that generalists have the opportunity to see where all the specialist stuff can be yeah. mashed up to become more useful. I think yeah. the trouble with specialists is that they only see their thing and they don't see the connectedness between different types of technology. And when you actually think about it, most of the big steps in technological change in the last 20 years or so have been the mashup of multiple solutions not just one piece you know the iphone as an example wasn't built just because they had good good batteries it was good it was built because they had 3g and good batteries and good memory and good screens and good touch user interfaces and good software but all of those things existed nokia for example didn't see them coming but yeah. apple did because they realized that the thing in your hand is more than a phone. Yeah, and I think the, the,
1: that's the, well. That was the genius of what they did. At, what Jobs created. Why he 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 took a product and he took music that people were getting for free, and he made everybody pay a dollar for a song. Yes, and he did it. He did it because he created a holistic environment where all of those tools work together as one, and you were a lot better off with all of them than you were with just one of them. And so you bought everything. You bought a MacBook Pro. You bought an iPhone. You got an ipad you've got cloud, icloud and you've got itunes and and now you pay a uh, buck 26 a song for something that you were you know most everybody was getting for free uh whether it was legal or not just be debated but uh the net of it is is uh, he did that was the genius of what what he created there it was a, a holistic environment where he took you know the palm pilot he took the camera he took the music he took the phone voice and video You know, put it all into one product combined with your PC or your tablet, and he made them all work together harmoniously.
0: You know, it's funny, you know, the other genius in that story, by the way, was Sir Richard Branson. Three weeks after Apple announced that you could now buy music on the iTunes store, remember initially you couldn't do that. Yeah. Three weeks after it, he sold Virgin Megastores. Yeah. I think that that was a very, very prescient. Yes the richard he uh, he really another, worked it out
1: another guy another guy that sees things way before you know way way before they happen brilliant brilliant man
0: brilliant man so i have to ask what keeps you awake at night if anything um well what you just talked about what are what are our kids are going to do
1: when they're you know with their future where are the jobs going to be for for a nation um you know that that's you know that's what keeps you up at night um what doesn't keep me up at night is is you know work i feel pretty comfortable that um you know certainly the path that i'm on and the path that my team is on is the right one and i think we're in the right space i think you and i are fortunate to have chosen a really nice um area to make a living i think it's a, the pace of change in our business right now simon has never been faster i mean what happened to nokia and motorola where one minute we were using flip phones and the, and the next minute they were out of business, uh, that is just accelerating. So the exponential pace of change is something that I actually enjoy. And so I think it affords us, uh, all of us really nice careers because there's always gonna be new things, there's gonna be new ideas. I think people need to continue to sharpen their saw and to keep their sales skills sharp and and uh, continue to do the things like you were doing and taking chances and risks. and. Um, but, but maintaining your network, uh, and utilizing your network to your advantage. And I think if you have a really strong network, uh, I think it will, it will take you, it's your safety net. And I think it'll take you a long, long way. So I worry about our, our, I worry about our children, not just my own, but I worry about, um, our kids, our kids, kids, will there be jobs, will there be jobs that, and will they be inspired? Um, you know, those are, I think those
0: are things that are, that, that keep me up. Mm, i agree well look joe it's been an absolute pleasure um we've been friends for the end of 20 years i've worked for you for a number of those it's always been great fun uh we're going to keep in touch and i really appreciate you getting involved today is there any last thoughts you want to give our listeners before i let you go no, Simon,
1: I'm really proud of you. I'm really, I'm really happy to see you doing what you're doing, and I think you're great at it. You're the best I've seen. I think I've said that uh, in the preamble of your, of your book, and I meant what I said, and I'm really happy for you, and Amy, congratulations on your nuptials, and I hope you have, a, you have a
0: wonderful rest of your life. That's great. Thank you, Joe. <laughs>